sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman from Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a story that shows us that Jesus came into the world to pursue and to identify with outcasts and failures. And the way he pursues outcasts and failures is by offering them satisfaction. He offers to quench their thirst. That's why the dominating image in this story is the image of water. Water for those who are parched. Water for those who are thirsty. But thirsty not on a physical level, thirsty on a spiritual level. Jesus here is offering water for the forlorn and for the broken. Do you feel parched this morning? That's perhaps an initial question for you to think about on your own. Do you feel unsatisfied? Do you feel thirsty or hungry? At the risk of sounding too strange and too far off and too abstract right here at the beginning, one of the questions that this text asks of us is if we ever sense a longing, a longing in ourselves, maybe even for a moment that we desperately want to see met. I think that's actually a universal part of the human experience. We all have longings. We all have feelings that we want to see satisfied. C.S. Lewis, in his great essay, The Weight of Glory, puts it like this. But we pine 
the sense that in this universe we are treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. Jesus here is saying that he is the water of life. He is the answer to our deepest longings. Jesus is the satisfying fountain of life that we are all deep down, even if we don't realize it, searching for. Now, John's gospel, as we're going through it, is showing us again and again, week after week, that Jesus is the full self-disclosure of God. Jesus came to make God known. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Last week, we saw Jesus encounter an individual, a religious leader named Nicodemus. Today, in chapter 4, he encounters another individual, this woman at the well from Samaria. And next week, in chapter 5, he'll encounter a third individual. But for now, it's important for you to think about the contrast between who Jesus met last week, Nicodemus, and this Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was learned and powerful. He was respected. He was orthodox. He was theologically trained. But this woman is unschooled. She's without influence. She's despised, actually. Nicodemus was a man. She's a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. She's a Gentile. Nicodemus was a religious ruler. She is a moral outcast. Nicodemus and this woman couldn't be more different. And yet, on the other hand, they're exactly the same. That's what Jesus wants us to see as we encounter this woman together in this story. Really, all of us are the same, no matter our spiritual or moral resume. Nicodemus, just as much as this woman, needed Jesus and Jesus' grace. The Gospel of John tells us again and again that it doesn't matter where we come from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter what we are like, we all equally need what Jesus alone can give, whether we're religious or irreligious. And praise God, Jesus has come for all of us. Herman Melville, in his famous novel, Moby Dick, Dick, puts it like this, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. For we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. That's true. And that's what Jesus wants us to see about ourselves today. Let me summarize the main idea of John 4 like this. Jesus offers the fulfilling water of grace to admitted outcasts and failures. That's what God has for us today. He wants us to see and to believe that Jesus offers the fulfilling water of grace to admitted outcasts and failures. Three points. For our text today, let me show you first that Jesus goes after the outcasts. You see that in verses 1 through 9. Look in verse 3, actually. We read there that Jesus leaves Judea with his disciples and he travels north again towards Galilee. Now, these are probably verses that if you've read John on a devotional level, you might just kind of really quickly read right past as as it's taking us from one geographical location to the next. But in verse 4, there's something really important that I want you to pick up on. John tells us that Jesus had to, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, Samaria is just to the north of where Jesus is in Judea. And he can go through Samaria to get to Galilee. So sandwiched between Judea and Galilee is Samaria. And Jews and Samaritans, we see in verse 9, hated each other. That's not an exaggeration. They despised each other. It's pure 
unadulterated racism. You can read about that story in the Old Testament and learn about what had happened. But by the time Jesus is born and alive, the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along at all. Because from a Jewish perspective, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were not pure-blooded. Remember in Harry Potter, you might not, but I do, (laughs) in the second book, The Chamber of Secrets, Draco Malfoy, who's the mean little wizard's son, who's from a very prestigious wizarding family, says to Hermione Granger on the playground outside of Hogwarts one day, you're a filthy little mudblood. And everyone is shocked and stunned And what that means, we learn, Harry, who's new to the wizarding world, doesn't know what that means. So they tell him what this means is that Hermione has one parent who's a wizard and one parent who's a muggle. Non-wizards for all of you muggles out there. Muggles are non-wizards. And and they were despised by the pure-blooded wizarding family in the Harry Potter books. Hermione's a mudblood, and so she's looked down upon by those who are of purer stock in the wizarding world. Well, for a Jew in the first century, Samaritans are mudbloods. Samaritans are half-breeds. Samaritans are religious syncretists. They're a mixture of Jewish and Gentile in their worship and in their living, and they had been for centuries at this point. That's where Jesus goes. But Jesus doesn't have to go through Samaria because of geographical reasons. You should know that. Jesus could have done what many conscientious Jews in his day did, and that is to go around Samaria to take a circuitous route so that you wouldn't have to deal with these Samaritan people. Jesus could have easily taken another path that many rabbis in his day undoubtedly would have taken. But John tells us that Jesus, listen, had to go through Samaria. Why? Here's why. Jesus had to go through Samaria because that is why he came into the world. Jesus came to love and to rescue those that are miscreants and outcasts, those that are far from God. Jesus came to reach the other. It's hard to imagine what it would have been like for Jesus' disciples who are off, you know, getting Whataburger in the village while Jesus is meeting with this woman and, and they come back and you read about it. Verse 27, which we didn't read, says they're marveled. They marveled that Jesus is talking to this woman. And by this time, I imagine this woman is crying. She's upset. The disciples show up and they're like, Jesus, they didn't have the quarter pounder. So we got, oh, oh, awkward situation, right? They're shocked that Jesus is, is talking to this Samaritan woman at a well. But Jesus pursues her. He pursues the outsider. And this person, this Samaritan, is the quintessential outsider. She clearly saw herself that way as well. The text tells us that she's at the well drawing water at the sixth hour, which is noon. And throughout the history of the universe, in any part of the world where people draw water at a well, they don't go at noon. It's the heat of the day. Women, even in this even today around the world where women go to wells and draw water, they go in the evening and they go together when the weather is cooler and they sit and they talk at the water. But that's not what this woman does. She goes by herself at a period when she knows no one else is going to be there because this woman has deep shame. She's been ostracized. She's on the margins. She's forgotten. She's scorned. I mean, just think about the barriers that exist between this Samaritan woman and Jesus. Jesus is showing here that he's the great barrier breaker. 
One of the barriers is that she is a she. She's a woman. Jewish rabbis in the first century didn't speak to women, especially Samaritan women. We'll get to that in a second. There's a quote in the first century that Jewish men would often use where they would say, Dear God, thank you that you did not make me a Gentile or a slave or a a woman. Sexism. This is a sexist culture without any question. But Jesus is breaking the barrier of sexism here. He cares for this woman. He sees her as an image bearer of God. As a woman with fully equal dignity and worth and honor and value as any men. She's a woman, but she's also a Samaritan woman. That's another barrier. We mentioned earlier that there's significant racial tension between Jews and Samaritans. But really, there's both a religious and a racial barrier here. And Jesus is very overtly here confronting the evil of racism. And we see here that racism is as old as the scripture itself. And Jesus boldly and forthrightly goes forward and cares for this woman who would have been rejected and ostracized by any other Jew in that day simply because she was a Samaritan. We can see here that racism has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. And the church should be on the forefront of this issue in our world today because Jesus was on the forefront of this issue then. The church should talk about it and address it and see it as an ongoing problem because Jesus addressed it. And Jesus longs for it to be healed and the world to be rid of it by his power. There's a sexist issue. There's a racist issue. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan, but she's also a sinner. A sinner. She undoubtedly would have been seen as a prostitute, as a harlot in that world. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But we know now that she's been married five times and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. So that's three strikes. She's out female, Samaritan, prostitute. And that's exactly who Jesus goes after. She's the anti-Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to see Jesus. But who does Jesus pursue? Jesus pursues this woman. Because that's what Jesus is like. Jesus loves the outcasts. Jesus loves the misfits. Jesus loves those that are trampled on by the establishment. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus identifies himself with these types of people in his own poverty and in his own humiliation, with the low and with the burdened and with the hurting. One of the questions that this text is placing on our hearts is, do we pursue the same sorts of people that Jesus pursued? Do we like getting involved with needy people, with hurting people, with the outcast, with the minority, with the ostracized? Are we breaking down barriers with gospel love, racial barriers, sexist barriers? Is our church a place of welcome for the outcast, for minorities, for the struggling? That's one of the barometers you see of the depth of our belief in the gospel. Because listen, the gospel tells us that really we're all outcasts. We're all other. We're all ostracized from God and all in need of his grace. But the message of the cross brings us back to God and it brings us together. It breaks down, as Paul says in Ephesians, the walls of hostility that were formerly erected. May that increasingly be the case among us. Jesus clearly here shows us that he came to pursue 
spiritual failures, misfits, and outcasts. Secondly, Jesus gives living water to the thirsty. So he sits down to rest. By the way, that's an amazing thing that the Son of God has to rest because he gets tired. That's another sermon. That was for free right there. He sits down to rest at Jacob's well, verse 6. And this woman approaches and Jesus asks her for a drink of water. Now, just imagine how socially taboo that was. I mean, that's something you just didn't do. And I love this entire interaction because Jesus is so clearly setting this woman up the entire time. He says, give me a drink of water. And her immediate response is like, "Uh, you talking to me? Like, you know, you're not supposed to be talking to me, right? You can just see it. You can envision it. She's almost thinking, do you not see like these massive social barriers that are separating us? And in response, Jesus presents to her this mystifying and fascinating idea there in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who I am, you would be asking me for water. And I would give you living water. This is Jesus's way of doing evangelism. He's loving and yet he's bold. He gets right to the point here. What he's doing is he's addressing this woman's deepest needs. Let's think about that a little bit more. We need to understand this idea of living water. Jesus mentions it in verse 10, but what does that mean? On these next few verses, I think we see the meaning. The woman doesn't understand him, obviously, verse 11. Sir, you don't have anything to draw water with, and this is, this is a deep well. Where are you going to get the living water? And then she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? Now that is, for the reader, unbelievably ironic. Because the answer from the perspective of the scriptures is yes. That's actually precisely who this person is. I love the idea here that Jesus is sitting on a well, but Jesus is the well. Jesus is telling this woman he will give her water. She thinks he means literal physical water that he's going to go down into the well to get, but he's referring, in fact, to himself. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the well. Jesus is offering her himself a new life and forgiveness through his life and death and resurrection. I think about many texts in the Old Testament. Most famously, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, where we read, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying to this woman, and really he's saying to you and he's saying to me, your physical thirst is not your biggest problem. What you're truly thirsty for What you're truly parched for and what we're all truly parched for is the water of life. The water that Jesus alone provides. The water, verse 14, that will quench our thirst forever. That will well up into eternal life for each one of us. Jesus is saying this, when you see me for who I am, your greatest thirst will be quenched. Now this woman is not just physically thirsty. That's the point. She's clearly been looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Her desire is to be loved. It's to be connected to a man. And that has obviously not worked out. And she hungers and thirsts to be known, to be intimately close to another. Yet here she is at this well at midday by herself. She's a pariah. She's a reproach. She's an outsider. She's spiritually parched. She's spiritually thirsty. And Jesus offers her the water of life. What are you thirsty for? 
Or do you even see yourself as thirsty? You know, one of the regular refrains in John's gospel is that Jesus is satisfying. And remember a couple of weeks ago, we see that Jesus is the true wine. Here we see he's the water of life. In a few weeks, we'll see Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus satisfies our deepest wants and desires and longings, but we don't tend to see Christianity in those terms. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, my guess is that we more often think about Christianity maybe as a rationalist would. Christianity is a set of true principles and concepts that I intellectually assent to. Or we think of Christianity as moralists. Christianity is a set of commandments and laws, and if I obey them as best I can, then more than likely, things are going to work out well for me. We tend to think of Christianity in those ways, but how John presents Christianity, how John presents Jesus, is not just in a rationalistic way or in a moralistic way. There's something, and I can't think of a better word than this, there's something sensual about the way John presents Christianity about the way John presents Jesus. Jesus satisfies us. Jesus meets our, not just needs, he meets our desires. That's exactly where he goes straight away with this woman. And so the question is, can you see yourself in her? We're all just like this woman. The, the reason that we do the things we do and the reason that we make the choices we make And the reason that we screw up in the ways that we screw up is because we have desires. We have thirsts. We have wants. We have desires to be loved. We have desires to be accepted. We have desires to be known. We want to feel connected. We want to feel joy. We want to feel valued. We want to feel loved. This woman had been looking for all of that. And at this moment in her life, she's alone. And the same thing happens sometimes to each one of us. That's what it means, you see. That's what it means to be human. To be human means that we all have longings, we all have desires, and those are good and glorious things. But we look to the wrong people or to the wrong objects to satisfy them. Another prophet, Jeremiah, in chapter 2, says this. This is from God. God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. And then listen to how God describes himself, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What broken cisterns are you hewing out in your own life right now? What do you want to satisfy you? What are you looking for to fulfill your longings? Typically, those are good things. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your children or your parents or your grandchildren. Maybe it's security that you're looking for. Maybe it's success in your career. Maybe it's financial success. But none of those things, good as they are, are meant to ultimately satisfy. That is something that only Jesus can give. And that's what Jesus wants this woman to understand. It's what he wants each of us to understand. C.S. Lewis, again, in The Weight of Glory, puts this better than anyone else. And this is used so often that it's almost cliche. If C.S. Lewis can be cliche, which I think is really hard, but I'm going to read it anyway. Uh, This is just an incredible quote that he makes. I think he's making the same point here. Here's what he writes. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. To sum up, here's what Jesus is saying to this Samaritan woman and what he's saying to each of us. The only water that can match the thirst that we have is the water that Jesus gives, the living water, the water that springs up to eternal life. Marriages can't give you that. Children can't give you that. Success can't give you that. Beauty and wealth cannot give you that. Degrees can't. Accomplishments can't. Friends can't. Only in Jesus can our desires to be loved and known and valued and accepted and treasured be fully satisfied. Jesus is the well. He's the well of life. Remember those old Gatorade commercials that Gatorade is the great thirst quencher for that deep down body thirst. If you've watched the NFL in the last 25 years, you've seen one of those commercials probably. That's Jesus. Jesus is the great thirst quencher for our deep down spiritual thirst. Jesus can give us all that we want and all that we long for because Jesus gives us himself. He offers us his own life at the cross and at the empty tomb. He draws us to himself and he captures us gently in himself. Jesus offers this woman living water. So how do you get it? (laughs) Assuming for a moment that Jesus is correct, that he can give living water that will never make us thirst again. He can meet our deepest needs and longings and desires. How do you get it? Well, we see that thirdly. Jesus gently confronts the broken. Verse 15, this woman is intrigued. And so she says to Jesus, give me this water. Okay, she asks, that's great. If you're hungry and thirsty, ask. She asks, but she clearly doesn't fully get it yet. Look what she she says next. Give me the water so that I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come here in the middle of the stinking day at noon and draw water. I mean, this is a real pain. I'd love to not ever have to come and draw water again. So she kind of gets it, but she doesn't really get it. And yet Jesus is is gracious with her and he goes forward with this conversation. Even though she doesn't understand it fully, Jesus shows her how to get the water that he offers. He shows us how to get the water that that he offers. And this is going to be the hard part. Are you ready? To get the water of life, to have our greatest human desires met, to know and to be known by the great lover of our souls, by Jesus himself. Listen, we must allow him to confront our brokenness. That's what he does here. Look at how abruptly he changes the subject there in verse 16. Go call your husband. What? What? Hold on. Now think about how awkward and uncomfortable she's going to immediately feel. And she says something that's not an outright lie, but it's not the whole truth either. I don't have a husband. She's certainly taken aback by all that Jesus is doing now. Maybe she's thinking, great, another man ordering me around. Awesome. And we don't know what this woman's background is, by the way. We don't know all of her story. But I think it's fair to say that she's made mistakes of her own. She's ruined multiple relationships. And it's also fair to say that she's been victimized and treated like an object to use and discard by many men over her life. She is both guilty of sin and a victim of sinners. She's broken. She's wounded. But the point is that Jesus goes straight for that. He goes straight for her heart, straight to the core. 
And he shows us here that to get the living water, you have to admit that you can't quench your own thirst. She needs to acknowledge this. She needs to acknowledge it at the deepest level so that the water of life found in Jesus can fill her. I love what Hannah Bowles Weber writes about this text. Here's what she says. The living water offered by Jesus Christ goes to your lowest point, the heart of your wounds. You know, think about it. When you pour water over a cracked and dry surface, the cracks, the lowest parts are filled first. To use the language of Jeremiah again, she needs to lay down her own broken cistern and receive what Jesus is offering by trusting him for who he is. And so she's confronted with this reality. And initially she goes halfway. I don't have a husband. (laughs) And Jesus doesn't let her get off on a technicality. He says, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. Now she's super uncomfortable and she does what a lot of us do. She tries to change the subject. And in fact, she clearly has some level of church background because she tries to change the subject by getting into a theological debate. I mean, look at what she says. She says, you know, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans say this. Which one is right, Jesus? What books have you read about this? Are you trying to change the subject on Jesus? When he presses into the deepest of your wounds and says, this is where you need living water. You say, let's debate theology. When he presses into the deepest hurts in your life and says, this is where you need to confess and repent and believe. You say, I'm going to go read another book. I know you and I know me. We're Presbyterians. We're great at reading books. That's what we do. That's what I do, right? And Jesus says, no, no, you can't Change the subject on me. He continues to lovingly press. He continues to gently confront. And he actually answers her question, verses 21 through 24. And yet he, in the doing so, drives her back to himself. He wants her to see and acknowledge him for who he is. And eventually he says, verse 26, I am. I am the one you speak of. That's an amazing thing. The first I am statement in John is given to this Samaritan woman. In the middle of nowhere off the beaten path, Jesus and her by themselves, to a woman who's had five husbands, who's an outcast, who's all by herself, Jesus reveals his glory. He reveals his grace. And she believes. We know she believes because later in the text, she immediately goes and tells her whole village. One of the first signs of faith is that you want to talk to other people about it. She says, come and see this man who tells me everything that I've ever done. And there's a mini revival in this tiny little village. Because this woman has begun to see that all of her life up to that point had been an exercise in failing to satisfy her deepest longings in her own power. She begins to see for the first time here with Jesus that she needs the water of life, that she can't give herself. Only Jesus can give it to her. And indeed, Jesus does offer it to her. Listen, that's what you need too. You need it right now. You need the life that Jesus offers you. He offers it to you right here, right now in this place. Through his death on the cross, he offers you forgiveness of all of your sins, all the brokenness in your life. Through his resurrection from the dead, Jesus right now offers you true and eternal and abundant life. 
And by faith, by trusting in Jesus, by believing that he is who he says he is, by entrusting your full self to him, you can connect to the well. You can receive the satisfaction that you've been looking for because Jesus gives you peace. Jesus gives you rest. Jesus will give you hope and healing. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. When you walk through the waters, he will be there. When you go through the fire, he will walk with you and you won't be burned. He will be your God, nearer and closer to you than you are even to yourself. And to receive him, you must allow him to confront your brokenness as he did this woman at the well. Are you willing? You can't change the subject on Jesus like she tried to do initially. You have to acknowledge that the wells that you dig to attempt to live a satisfying life will all dry up. You have to acknowledge that you can't give to yourself the fullness of life that all humans hope for. You have to acknowledge that you've actually made quite a mess of things through your failures and your selfishness and your ignoring God. You're guilty and you're going to end up hopeless and alone apart from his help. Acknowledge that and then drink. Drink from the water of life by faith. Rest in Jesus and his spirit. Believe that he is who he says he is, the water of life, an everlasting fountain that will meet our every need. Turn away, Jesus says. Turn away from your broken cisterns and drink deeply from the well. I love that, I love that this woman came on this fateful day, another day in her life, to draw water from the well. And she left with the well. She left with eternal water. She left with a fountain that will forever well up to eternal life within her by faith. The well's available for you right now. Do you want to go home with it? Rest in Jesus. See him for who he is and trust. Let's pray.